Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, we will be looking at the concept of companions and friendship, Nietzsche's concept of re-evaluating and challenging our ideas. We've got some nice examples from the history of medicine, Nietzsche's idea of newness and creation, and then rounding off, we have a nice discussion of the image of the eagle and the serpent. And accompanying that is a nice discussion, very briefly, of Nietzsche's ideas here of reason versus desire that's illustrated by his view of the ancient Greek gods Apollo and Dionysus. So let's get rolling, as they say. Section 9 Zarathustra slept long, and not only the dawn, but the morning too passed over his head. By length he opened his eyes. In surprise, Zarathustra gazed into the forest and the stillness. In surprise, he gazed into himself. Then he arose quickly like a seafarer who suddenly sees land and rejoiced, for he beheld a new truth, and then he spoke to his heart thus, A light has dawned for me, I need companions, living ones, not dead ones, in corpses, which I carry with me wherever I wish, but I need living ones who will follow me because they want to follow themselves, and who want to go where I want to go. A light has dawned for me, Zarathustra, shall not speak to the people, but to companions. Zarathustra shall not be a herdsman and a dog to the herd, to lure many away from the herd. That is why I have come. The people and the herd shall be angry with me. The herdsman shall call Zarathustra a robber. I say herdsman, but they call themselves the good and the just. I say herdsman, but they call themselves the faithful of the true faith. Behold, the good and the just. Whom do they hate most? Him who smashes their tables of values, the breaker and the lawbreaker, but he is the creator. Behold, the faithful of all faiths. Whom do they hate the most? Him who smashes their tables of values, the breaker, the lawbreaker, but he is the creator. The creator seeks companions, not corpses or herds or believers. The creator seeks fellow creators, those who inscribe new values on new tables. So Zarathustra here is saying he doesn't want to be a leader for everybody. He doesn't want to be a herdsman. He wants companions. So this is more to do with, it's the idea in which we don't have one man who thinks his concept and view of things is so great that it ultimately dominates and should shape 
how everyone else should think about things. And we have this in sort of a way in which Nietzsche's commenting here on organized religion and the way in which in organized religions it precisely has that herdsman and the herd mentality where the spiritual doctrine would dictate how everybody should live their lives. But Zarathustra saying here, no, what I'm going to say isn't actually going to work like that. What I'm going to say isn't going to be in such a way that I want to dictate what people have to say. And when we have this idea of I need companions, it's ultimately friends who you're going to share your ideas with and share your own view of the world with, but not in such a way in which you're going to dictate how they should think about things. But friends are going to give you a positive way in which you could think about things as well and influence your own view. So for example, we could have here a way in which we could see people when they get really intensely passionate about a specific sports team, one person will try to ultimately influence the way in which all the rest of the people are trying to think about things like, oh, this team is so good because they have X amount of players. They have all these professionals, they've won this amount of games, and it's trying to manipulate and influence the way in which other people think about that specific team and try to get you on board about it. But a good friend won't try to influence your judgment in any way. The good friend, in fact, will be like, sure, you like your team, I like my team, and may the best man win. So it still allows us to have our own individual differences, our own perspective about things, rather than trying to completely override our opinion and trying to degrade it or subvert it in any way. The good friend will be the person who's very much more positive about it and precisely complimentary about your opinion. And it can help as well thinking about the way in which it's a commentary here on the way in which Plato's own philosophy works through a series of companions because Plato's dialogues work in the sense of you have Socrates there and then you have a bunch of people or companions discussing various ideas but ultimately who always comes out on top is Socrates's view so regardless whatever they're discussing what's the meaning of justice how do we reach knowledge and so forth it's always Socrates that comes out on top. And so the initial views that we have in Plato, the initial ones that kick off the whole discussion in the first place, they're all sort of buried in the midst of the discussion as you go through it. But Nietzsche's point here is more so like the point of the companions isn't to bury their opinions. In fact, the companions actually influence and can challenge and make you reevaluate your own opinion in a positive way and this idea of reevaluating our own ideas and reevaluating our opinions about things continues on into Nietzsche's discussion about what's good just and faithful because he says here they hate precisely when anyone challenges their ideas of what is good and just and we can see as well the stubbornness about people and holding their opinion about what's good, my way of thinking about what's good's right, and how dare you challenge me, and how dare you try to say that what I think is actually incorrect. 
People get really offended by that. But Nietzsche's point holds up in the sense of what we think is good for us at a given point in time can in fact be harmful for us. And an easy example, of course, is to just go into the history of medicine. We have in the 50s, of course, the famous examples of where smoking was meant to be good for you. And of course now we know in modern medicine that's absolutely rubbish because it can give you lung cancer. In fact, not can give you lung cancer, but will give you lung cancer if you keep it up. And another example of this is, of course, the way in which we have in medical treatment of people with mental health issues, of course, in which is go through the whole treatment method of that and to say what the way in which their ideas of what they thought was good for someone was actually really harmful. And so, of course, the easiest example of that to say, you know, is a full frontal lobotomy a good idea for anybody? Of course it's not. But we can also go into, you know, how psychiatry is treated and the mental patients and so forth were treated in the 50s and so on and the really horrible conditions people were... Um, captain and the horrible treatments that were enforced upon people. Another example, of course, is um, shock therapy. And of course, we have that in the movie examples in which you see people horribly getting electrocuted. Just absolutely horrible. And that's, the, that's also Nietzsche's point as well. It's like, during that given time period, people thought that what they were doing for those that are mentally ill, they thought that electric shock therapy, and before that, a full frontal lobotomy was actually good. It's not until, of course, later on that we have the whole challenge to those ideas, and then we realize precisely the harm that it has for everybody in the first place. And what's interesting, of course, here is not only Nietzsche saying by challenging what we think is good in a given time period, but when we challenge it, we move into this state of reevaluating. evaluating how do we arrive at a much more positive idea of doing things. And when we reach that, he says we reach this creative phase of being a creator about things. And it's precisely to do that point, to reach into that state of being more positive for us in a way in which it changes the way in which we think about what's good and makes it better for someone and also makes it respond to the modern problems that's emerged in a given time period. So ultimately we don't erase the structure altogether by challenging it or try to insert a new one but it's that process of restructuring and make it work better with what we've already got. That is to say, in order to make psychiatry work, for instance, we don't need to move towards a completely different psychiatry. We just need to rework psychiatry and how it can more positively be beneficial for patients, better forms of treatment. We don't need to completely scrap it either as an idea. And this, of course, allows us to reflect upon the points in which he says, I seek fellow creators those who inscribe new values on new tables. So newness here doesn't mean to completely eradicate or completely destroy what we've already got, but rather how can we make it work better with what we have already have that's there.
So continuing on, the Creator seeks companions and fellow harvesters, for with him everything is ripe for harvesting, but he lacks his hundred sickles, so he tears off the ears of corn and is vexed. The Creator seeks companions and such as know how to wet their sickles. They will be called destroyers and despisers of good and evil, but they are harvesters and rejoicers. Zarathustra seeks fellow creators, fellow harvesters, and fellow rejoicers. What has he to do with herds and herdsmen and corpses? And you, my first companion, fare you well. I have buried you well in your hollow tree. I have hidden you well from the wolves, but I am leaving you. The time has come. Between dawn and dawn, a new truth has come to me. I will not be herdsman or grave digger. I will not speak again to the people. I have spoken to a dead man for the last time. I will make company with creators, with harvesters, with rejoicers. I will show them the rainbow and the stairway to the superman. I shall sing my song to the lone hermit and to the hermits in Paris, and I will make the heart of him who still has ears for unheard of things heavy with my happiness. I make for my goal, I go my way, I shall leap over the hesitating and the indolent. Thus may my going forward be their going down. So we have Zarathustra initially being vexed, the fact he has no followers, and the fact that with him everything is ripe for harvesting, which falls back into Nietzsche's idea that everything needs to be reevaluated because everything, at least historically, within philosophy and our ideas, needs to be reevaluated because it all has that move towards metaphysics, the afterlife, the soul, everything that moves us away from the world. So he's really saying here, everything's ripe for harvesting. And of course, when people come in and reevaluate things and want to and move it towards something that's more positive to us, there's going to be all that resistance. There's going to be all those people that say, actually, what you're doing is destructful. You're going to be a destroyer precisely of everything. And it's it's precisely that point. It's no, actually what we're what Zarathustra's trying to do for us here is move us back towards something that's healthier for us because it's moving us towards the body, the world, and affirming life. But ultimately people have been fed the opposite idea for so long. People precisely and are enamored with the metaphysical and with the afterlife that when anybody ever comes around and says actually well what about the world and living now people get my god no how do you reevaluate things in a positive way is a move towards the superman Nietzsche is ultimately saying what's going to make everybody different what's going to make this whole different way of doing things and thinking about things is that we're going to think about the body we're going to be thinking about desire as a positive thing for us. We're going to have a life-affirming view of things. And we're going to move towards the world. And that's going to be the goal. Section 10. 
Zarathustra said this to his heart. As the sun stood at noon, then he looked inquiringly into the sky, for he'd heard above him the sharp cry of a bird, and behold, an eagle was sweeping through the air in wide circles, and from it was hanging a serpent, not like a prey, but like a friend, for it was called around the eagle's neck. It is my animals, said Zarathustra, and rejoiced in his heart. The proudest animal under the sun and the wisest animal under the sun, they have come scouting. They wanted to learn if Zarathustra was still alive. Am I, in fact, alive? I found it more dangerous among men than among animals. Zarathustra is following dangerous paths. May my animals lead me. When Zarathustra had said this, he recalled the words of the saint in the forest, sighed and spoke thus to his heart, I wish I were wise, I wish I were wise from the heart of me, like my serpent, but I am asking the impossible, therefore I ask my pride always to go along with my wisdom, and if one day my wisdom should desert me, ah, it loves to fly away, then may my pride too fly with my folly. Thus began Zarathustra's downgoing. So here we have the image of the eagle and the serpent. This is a very famous image, of course, because the eagle and the serpent has a relation to the foundation of Mexico. It was precisely thought to be a message from the gods when the Aztecs saw that an eagle had killed this serpent, and therefore they decided to build Mexico upon precisely that very ground, that message from the gods to say here, this is the place where you could build your city. And why is that the case? Because the eagle represents or is symbolic for the highest aspiration of the human spirit because of its triumph of our physical nature. So ultimately we have sort of the ideas here of reason and the intellect triumphing over our bodily desires. The snake is of course symbolic of that bodily desire and we have the biblical example of that in the Garden of Eden in Genesis where the snake represents desire and temptation. But interestingly enough here at the end of the prologue in section 10 we have the serpent around the eagle's neck like a friend. And what's going on here is that we don't have the triumph of reason over desire but rather we have both them at work simultaneously in a very positive way. And it's a very easy example to understand what Nietzsche means here is that our emotions as well and our desires can have a positive way in which we think upon things. So once we've done an action that makes us upset, that emotion has a very positive effect on how we think upon things and it's a way in which we can say, ah, now I'm wrong. I can see why I'm wrong. But without that, you just run through life again like the ultimate man previously, just robotically 
just thinking that you're completely right all the time. You could also think about the harm that that would cause if you just run through life having absolutely no reflection upon your actions. And this this uh, image of reason and desire coming together in a positive way also goes back into Nietzsche's very first work called The Breath of Tragedy, in which Apollo and Dionysus represent that dynamic between each other. So on the one hand you have Apollo as a god of reason and health and music, and on the other you have Dionysus as the god of wine and sex. It's ultimately the god of desire. And a fun way, of course, to think about this is always usually this dynamic plays out in the terms of buddy films, buddy movies, because in, you would always have this straight guy as being the rational, straight cut, follows things by the book. And then you have the more Dionysian, doesn't play by the rules, more edgy sort of guy. And one movie where we really have that dynamic going on, we can see in uh, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, we have the two characters of Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, and then you have the character of Rachel, who's a robot. So that obviously the character of Rachel, being the rational person, doing everything by the book, by the programming, and then Deckard as being the Dionysian, doing everything through passion and desire. And of course from that, you can see the very positive role the mixing of the two has, because Rachel learns what it's like to be human. One of the scenes in the movie, they have sex, and what's more human to indulge in desire, so of course. And on the other hand, Rachel's going to be good for Harrison Ford or Deckard's character's lifestyle in that movie, you know, trying to make him overall better person. And so that's the way in which the dynamic usually between the two works is that the Apollonian person helps the Dionysian become more structured, a healthier approach to things, and then on the Dionysian side of things, the influence in which they help the Apollonian is by letting them loosen up a bit. And by loosening up, and they can see through their own emotions the ways in which it would have a positive impact upon their thinking about things and on lifestyle as well. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed my little chat about Zarathustra prologue sections 9 and 10. Next time, we will be having a general discussion about the prologue section. So I'll be covering a discussion about prophecy, soothsaying, and its relation to philosophy. Feel free to drop me a wee email to ask any questions at dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Thank you very much for listening and I'll help you join us next time.